0: Hello and welcome to The Solution, A Wellness Manifesto. I'm your host, Dr. Nate Lowenstein, and this is episode number three, Your Friend's Diet is Stupid. All right, let's get into it. Okay, welcome to episode number three. I'll be honest, I struggled a little bit with this episode because of how important it is that this message lands well and sinks in. Well, there are quite a few things to cover regarding trends, the episode's title really sums up what I need you to know, and that is Your Friend's Diet is Stupid. That is the title of the episode this week. It was almost the title of the whole show, but it didn't really by itself cover everything that I wanted to accomplish with the show. However, what it should tell you is that I have some pretty strong opinions about diets and diet programs and called diet experts plans and things like that. So that's the theme of today's show. Your friend's diet is stupid. Dieting is stupid. Dieting sucks and it almost always fails. So we're going to talk about why that is. I'm going to go off on a bit of a rant about some of my pet peeves regarding dieting and the whole nutrition landscape and media. And then I'll settle in on what I believe the solution to all that noise is. After all, what good is complaining if I don't provide some solutions? So rant number one, just regarding the diet industry, we're talking about a multi-billion dollar industry of programs and potions designed to sell you weight loss. Weight loss is almost always the goal with these things. Weight loss is a profitable thing if you're in the industry. Programs like Weight Watchers make a bulk of their profits on a return business, which really tells you everything you need to know about that company and their long-term success, which is to say, long-term, their program results in failure, which is why it keeps bringing people back over and over again. You'll also notice that even in the modern landscape of your insta-famous nutrition and wellness experts, body composition is at the foreground of most, if not all, of their marketing. And there's a pretty good reason for that. Weight loss is typically what brings a consumer to the table. So why not target your marketing at weight loss and therefore dieting? And I'll tell you why. Because dieting and weight loss fail in the long term. It's important to understand this from the very beginning. And probably my biggest pet peeve about most of what I see in the nutrition world is this laser focus on body composition. That's probably the single biggest thing that needs to change because it's extremely short-sighted. And that, in my view, is why it fails so often. So much more on that following my rants here. Rant number two is that when these experts aren't selling you a six-pack, you're going to find that many of them are more interested in being liked and telling you what you want to hear just to bring you on board. You know, oh, you can eat whatever you want. All this food is fine and so on as long as it fits into some calculation they have for you versus shooting straight. And yes, they can all take some very nice photos of themselves, but that's not helpful to you. The all food is fine attitude is what got us into the mess we're in right now. So you're not going to get that here. Number one, I don't look that good in photos. And number two, I'm always going to tell you the truth according to what I see in the evidence. So does that mean I'm going to be right a hundred percent of the time? No way. There's no chance of that. There's no way that over the course of producing this, I will hit the target every time. But my goal is always going to be to provide you with no-nonsense, evidence-supported truth that's available at the time, and will just alter course as necessary. Because the bottom line is that the world of nutrition science is extremely messy. And unfortunately, it's mostly observational and anecdotal. So all we can do is pull out the best stuff we can find, make sure it makes sense in the real world. The good news is that real health is truly not all that complicated at all. So back to my issue, is any expert in this field telling you that there's no such thing as a bad food or bad food decisions? They're not being honest with you at all, telling you that you can eat whatever you want as long as it fits into the program or some math calculation is missing a couple of vital things about physiology and namely that food can operate as a drug of addiction causing you to overconsume. And also, that there just simply are bad foods. Now, eating those foods does not make you a bad person. In fact, eating those foods doesn't really reflect on your character or quality as a person at all. Assigning a moral code to the food that you consume is something that we do to ourselves. The food is indifferent. It doesn't care if you hate yourself for eating it or not. So what we need to do is just keep it very simple. Here's how you know if a food is good or bad. If you consume this food, any food, as the bulk of your diet... Would it result in health and vitality or lead you down a road to poor health and chronic illness? Essentially, is this a nutritious food? Is it full of nutrients or is it mostly empty calories? If illness is your answer to that question, you have a bad food. That's a bad food. So the best example to tie that all together again is looking back at Morgan Spurlock when he did his Supersize Me documentary. All of the food he ate during that documentary was highly processed, high in refined sugars and carbohydrates, empty calories, And after only 30 days on that diet, his health was beginning to suffer. That's all you need to know. That food was bad. It was bad for him. It was bad for his health. It not only kept him from being healthy, it was actively making him sick. And frankly, the food he was eating was bad for society and for the planet. So these foods are industrially designed to cause us to crave them, making them rewarding and therefore addictive, which is something we're going to discuss next week. So this is why it can be difficult to get away from these toxic foods and why we will just Often justify continuing to eat them. And believe me, I was that guy. I, I ate that stuff all the time. So this is something we have to acknowledge and address. We have to stop pretending that there isn't food that's bad for us. Bad food is the cause of disease, period. If we can't come to that basic understanding right now, we have nowhere else to go. Our nutrition choices lay the foundation for whether we are healthy or sick. And that is our starting point. And that is why your friend's diet is stupid. Rant number three. This one is recent and from the news, and I'll be honest, I didn't read a lot into the stuff that was coming out in the news, but recently a celebrity who apparently had been famous for being big and beautiful lost a bunch of weight, and it somehow became the news that mattered that day, and the story was whether or not we were allowed to talk about her weight loss or her weight in general. Well, I'm going to talk about weight, body mass index, and weight loss in this episode, and the bottom line is That if by improving her health, that person is now healthier and will live a longer, healthier life as a result of better lifestyle decisions. And because of that, she lost weight. That's a good thing. End of conversation. If she's healthier because of it, it is a good thing. So I said that after my rant, I would discuss why dieting is stupid. So here we go. Um, most of what you are sold or participate in regarding nutrition is based around diet and a diet is just a regimen of eating and drinking sparingly. So as to reduce weight, that's the Webster's definition of a diet. So here's the thing to focus on is that regardless of what is being packaged, whether it's a nutrition challenge, a diet plan program, or a pill or supplement, or just a straight up diet or weight loss challenge, when weight loss is the goal, the most likely outcome in the long term is failure. If you've ever been involved in any of these things and lost weight only to find yourself right back where you started shortly thereafter, you are not alone. Weight loss in these programs is due to an often very strict adherence to a method of calorie restriction over a defined period of time, and that's designed to reduce your body fat, ideally your body fat. And if participants are successful, and that is a big if, then they've reached the goal and they're left with nowhere to go. Because once weight loss is the goal, it's a dead-end goal, and that's because it's the wrong goal. Do you have any evidence for that? Yes. In fact, a recent DynaMed review looking at diets with weight loss as a goal, and in these diets or in these papers they reviewed, participants lost weight over the course of about six months and then returned to their pre-diet weight 12 to 24 months later because they put themselves in a different environment, a calorie-restricted environment, and as soon as they were done living in that environment, where did they go? They went back to the environment they came out of where they where they had weight to lose. So I can't stress this enough. This is so important to understand. Environment is everything. Your genes play a role, but they play that role inside the environment you're living in. You are right now, you have always been, and you will always be the genetic expression of your environment. There really is no argument there either. And I know I'm going to face some backlash, and I look forward to this, the comments and questions that we get in the show. But, but with Dr. Nate, it's more complicated than that. And I'm going to be honest with you, for most of us, and I mean almost all of us, it is not more complicated than that. We do want it to be more complicated because for a lot of us, myself included for the longest time, the inner dialogue, well, if it was that easy, I would have done it already. But ask yourself an honest question here. Have you? Have you put in work to make real sustainable lifestyle change where health was the goal and stuck to that change for a very long period of time? I'm talking a year or more. Or have you taken a short-sighted goal, made short-term changes, had short-term successes, and gone back to your previous lifestyle? And then in and out of that roller coaster. That is a deadly roller coaster. That is why failure so often is the result. So is weight loss important for an overweight person? Yes, but it honestly depends. In earlier episodes, we've discussed the significant increase in overweight and obese populations in Western society. And it turns out that the effects of those increases get a little bit more complicated. So first we need to understand what are we talking about when we say overweight or obese. For almost all of those measurements, we're using BMI, which is body mass index, which is really just a measurement of body dimensions. An underweight BMI is 18.5 or lower. Somewhere between 19 and 24 is considered, quote, normal. Overweight is 25 to 30. And then when we get to 30 to 40, that's obesity. And above 40 is morbid obesity. And that above 40 has seen a huge increase over the last 10 years. And I know I'm going to get the argument because a lot of people make this argument. Frankly, too many people make the argument that BMI is not useful or not relevant That argument is only valid and only applies to people who are very muscular because very muscular people will tend to have a BMI that is in the higher ranges. For those people, BMI may not be relevant. So we're talking about someone who trains, probably has a nutrition focus on their training. So if you're hearing that argument from that person, fair enough. If you're hearing this argument that BMI is irrelevant from someone who rarely exercises, who you know eats a bad diet, has a high amount of body fat, that argument loses its steam completely. So in order to combat that position, the new and frankly more effective standard is to look at BMI in addition to waist circumference. So if there's a waist circumference of greater than 35 in women and greater than 40 in men, and you combine that with a high BMI, we're likely talking about a person who is genuinely overweight or obese as a result of excess stored body fat. But so what? Who cares? Does it matter? Well, a BMI of greater than 25, getting into those overweight categories, is directly linked in the research to hypertension, coronary artery disease, stroke, type 2 diabetes, certain cancers, osteoarthritis, and a a few other markers of chronic illness. In addition to that, and this is again the world of infectious disease and, and chronic illness are colliding right now in the world, where we're living in the COVID-19 pandemic and the most recent statistics I've seen are that 90 plus percent of the people hospitalized or the people requiring ventilation or the, or the people that are needing the most intervention, medical intervention have comorbidities. And the most common comorbidity among them is obesity. So here we have chronic illness and infectious disease overlapping and America is taking a very big hit. Well, why is that? Well, statistically, the United States is the most obese country in the world. So it is time for this wake-up call. We have to take better care of ourselves. We have to stop making it so complicated. It's also worth mentioning that other comorbidities that were relevant to COVID-19 and to susceptibility of the worst version of this disease was hypertension or high blood pressure. And that is something extremely common in the United States, as well as type 2 diabetes. So obesity is killing us. And that is true, but it also gets a little more complicated depending on your lifestyle. It turns out that all-cause mortality, and when you hear that, we're just talking about a list of everything that can kill you. So, all-cause mortality is increased in the underweight BMI. If you're below 18.5, that seems pretty obvious. You're not getting enough food. And in obesity, but in the higher levels of obesity, categories 2 and 3. However, There was no increase in all-cause mortality if you were category one obese and actually a decrease in all-cause mortality if you were overweight. Now, keep in mind, number one, this is an observational study. So they're just looking at these two things that come together. And so that might lead someone to think, so if I'm overweight or obese, then I'm good. I'm good to go. And once again, it depends. It gets a little more complicated because it depends on where you fall socioeconomically. Poor people are more likely to be obese They're also more likely to die earlier than they should. But unlike the severely obese, their obesity is not what kills them. It's other lifestyle factors, key among them being stress, which we talked about last week, and smoking. But what you have to draw out of that, the most important thing to understand is they said other lifestyle factors, environmental factors such as the amount of stress these people are under or smoking, which is a choice that they're making, or ultimately, if you were paying attention, rocks in their backpack. So when it comes right down to it, being overweight or obese and stress or other poor lifestyle decisions are major contributors to the chronic lifestyle illnesses. So why would I say a commitment to weight loss is a commitment to failure? Am I not saying overweight or obese people should have this as a focus? Well, we know from the review I stated earlier that when we focus on weight loss, we fail. And it's because, again, I'm restating this, weight loss is the wrong goal. And it's the wrong goal because once you accomplish it, there's nowhere to go. So if I say I want to lose 20 pounds and then I do, now what do I do? I've accomplished my goal. Where do I go forward? More often than not, particularly if I engage in a severely restricted diet, I celebrate this by going back and eating the things I've been quote unquote missing out on. Then I return to my previous eating pattern and it might happen right away or it might happen gradually over time just as I stop paying attention. And that eating pattern was the one responsible for me being overweight to begin with. So when that happens, you don't have to be a rocket surgeon to understand that I'm going to gain this weight back. So if weight loss is the wrong goal, then what is the correct goal? Well, what we really need to do is make health the goal, regardless of our body composition. If you have a goal of eating a diet that focuses on creating the healthiest version of yourself, the diet itself is the goal. The food you're eating is the goal. This is something you can work with for life. That's a long-term goal. There is no dead end anywhere. If you wake up tomorrow and you say, I want to lose 30 pounds, you've committed to failure even if you lose the weight. That's what the data is telling us. But if you wake up tomorrow and say, today, I'm going to start making small, healthy choices, beginning with improving my daily nutrition, then you're on your way. So which diet is best? It seems rhetorical at this point, but there's a fun answer, and that is it depends. Every diet you've ever heard of is the best, or none of them are, depending on you. It all depends on you and what you're willing to do. In 2014, a study was done where they compared named diets. So they looked at things like Atkins, Zone, low-carb, low-fat, and all of these diets resulted in weight loss. And there was no significant difference between the diets in terms of how much weight was lost All of these things would have one major thing in common, and that would be a person eating fewer calories than they used. The key to the success of anyone in any of these diets was adherence to the diet. So long-term adherence to a way of eating, that's not a diet, that's a lifestyle. And long-term adherence is the key to success with everything. This is the most important nutrition concept I or anyone else can teach you is that how you feed yourself over the long term determines how healthy you want to be. Period. If you're eating like an out of control eight year old with a car and an unlimited budget, you have no intention of being healthy. Now you can go on the internet and absolutely bury yourself in diet comparisons and various experts telling you which one is best. And all this is going to lead to is a lot of frustration. You're going to be told that you should do keto. No, you should do intermittent fasting. You should do vegan or vegetarian or paleo or zone or whole 30 or low carb or low fat or the plant paradox diet or the carnivore diet or the big booty diet or the funny face diet or the California Colorado a Cali diet to let you eat 50 bananas a day diet. That's exhausting and it will leave you no closer to health no closer to a good nutrition. You get paralyzed by overanalysis, and it will lead most people to becoming overwhelmed and giving up before they even start or worse. You get started on something that makes sense to you. That's working for you. That's providing you with good nutrition. And a friend comes along and says, Oh no, 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 no. That's all wrong. You can't be doing that. You've got to be doing this because so-and-so said this and that. And here again, we're right back where we started with your stupid friends, stupid diet, ruining what you're trying to accomplish. So is there a diet that I recommend? And as a matter of fact, there is. I'm going to call it the Michael Pollan diet, which, by the way, isn't a diet at all. I don't think you could Google that and find it. But it's just a brilliant sentence written by a journalist author about the ease of the most fundamental principle of living well regarding nutrition. And that is eat food, not too much mostly plants. You see, when you look at the research behind all of the diets I named above in my little rant there, you should notice that they all have one very important thing in common. Most of them are based on eating a diet that focuses on real, whole, unprocessed foods. That's the biggest secret to a healthy diet there is. It's that frickin' simple. When you eat real food, more often than not, you will find improved health outcomes, which again is supposed to be the goal we're pursuing. When we compare the standard American diet or the SAD diet to any other pattern of eating that includes an improvement in food quality, you're likely to see improved health. We're going to dive into why that is in a bunch of later episodes, but the main thing to understand is that real food is nutritionally superior and is going to more often than not result in improved health outcomes. So as for the not too much portion of the pollen diet, one thing that becomes clear to a lot of people who move away from a diet with a lot of processed foods toward a diet made up of primarily whole foods is that the question of how much to eat really kind of takes care of itself. So whole foods, when you start eating them, they're more filling. And because there is are superior nutritional quality, higher fiber content, and higher food volume compared to the processed food you're eating, you're going to experience more fullness, fewer cravings, and crashes just by switching to this whole food diet. Michael Pullen also says we should be eating mostly plants. Well, why is that? Well, plant foods are extremely nutritious. They are full of vitamins, minerals, fiber, other nutrients vital to great health, some of which we may not even have identified yet. So the more plant food that you can get into your diet, the better, uh, which is going to lead me into our practical advice for today. Last week, we talked about the fresh fiber first concept, which is just to eat a real whole fruit or vegetable with every meal or snack, regardless of what else you're going to have. So you want a donut? No problem. Eat a carrot stick or an apple first. And then if you still have to have your donut, so be it. So I want to expand on that to some degree when it comes to just how much fruits and vegetables we should be eating in a given day. And it turns out we do have some decent data on that. A recent study showed that ingestion of 800 grams of fruits and vegetables was significantly associated with a decrease in all-cause mortality, which you'll remember from above just means the list of things that can kill you. So if you eat eight 100-gram servings of fruits and veggies a day, that's a great goal. Well, what's a serving? For the 800 grams, if you have a scale and you can weigh everything out, So you include your fruits, your vegetables, legumes or beans if you're having those. And as soon as you hit 800 grams, you've done it. If you don't have a scale, there's a couple other ways to estimate. If you take a a full dinner plate and pile it with fruits and vegetables, that's usually going to give you enough. That's going to give you about that 800 or typically a handful of anything is about 100 grams. So obviously those aren't perfect systems, but it's a start. Um, I do feel compelled to address the issue of fruit one more time. And I'll probably say this over and over again, because I've had people telling me this, and this is where, again, your friend's diet is stupid, where they're like, Nate, you can't be eating fruit. Apples are bad. Bananas are bad, etc. America is one of the least healthy, most overweight, obese countries in the world. And it is not because we are eating too many apples. That is not the problem. So I'm going to say this as simply as I can. If you're moving away from the standard American diet, to real food and you're using primarily fruit to get you there, that's great. Good job. That being said, I do strongly recommend a variety and getting as many different textures and colors and flavors as you can. Because again, those colors and textures represent different nutrients and some of which we may not even understand yet. So this is your action point for the week is to start working towards ingesting eight servings or 800 grams of fruits and vegetables every day. If you can do this on your own, great. If you need help, I'm going to recommend that you visit a website called OptimizeMeNutrition.com. This is a company run by a woman named E.C. Sinkowski. Um, E.C. has a master's degree in nutrition. She's presented a ton of information uh, for the CrossFit Journal, uh, CrossFit.com. I've never read or heard anything that E.C. has put out that I've disagreed with. She's incredible. She's brilliant. And she has an 800 gram challenge program that she designed just to help keep you on track and accountable while you're trying to make this enormously beneficial change in your life. Okay. So if you can go it alone, awesome. If you need help, go see EC Sinkowski. On next week's episode, we're going to talk a little bit about why the SAD diet is so hard to quit, why it's been so effective at making us overweight, and we're going to be discussing how processed food is made, how they go about creating it to increase cravings, and why it's so easy to overconsume calories on a diet like this. We're going to discuss how America eats, where we get our calories from, and you know maybe some of the shifts in direction we should be looking at doing. So I'm looking forward to it, I hope you'll join me. Thanks so much for joining me today on The Solution, A Wellness Manifesto. I appreciate you being here. I hope that the information we covered in this week's episode was beneficial to you and that you can apply it into your life to help yourself move away from sickness and towards health. I'd like to thank my sponsor, Functional Performance Chiropractic and Wellness, for their ongoing support, and I'd like to appeal to you. If you know anyone who would benefit from the information we're talking about on this show, and I know you do, please refer them back to episode number one so we can all get started on the same page. I look forward to working with you and them. Until next week, take good care of yourself.